This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Part 6 in our series titled The First Centuries in Season 2 of Communio Sanctorum. In the last episode, we took a look at the Church Father Irenaeus. In this episode, we'll consider Tertullian. Now, that may prompt some to wonder if we're going to work our way through all of the Church Fathers of the early Church. And the answer to that is, no, we won't. Just a few. While he's known to history as Tertullian, his full name was Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus. The story of his origins, well, it's a bit confusing. Born and raised in the North African city of Carthage, he's said to be both a Berber and the son of a Roman centurion in the legion that was attending the proconsul of Africa at the time. It's not unheard of that his father could have been both a Berber and a legionnaire since by that time, Rome was conscripting soldiers from many of the people that they had conquered. Berbers were an African ethnic group that called themselves the Amazig. The label Berber had been given to them by the Greeks. The word is derived from their designation for all non-Greeks, and it's the word from which we get our word barbarian. So racially, it's likely that Tertullian was a black African. Tertullian was born sometime around AD 150 and raised as a pagan. Holding a keen mind, he was given a great education in literature and rhetoric, most likely in preparation for practicing the law, which was the favored profession for young men seeking to enter the political realm in the complex game of Roman social advancement. While the details of his conversion are missing, he came to faith in Christ around the age of 40. Tertullian may have done a brief stint as a lawyer in Rome, but he returned to his hometown of Carthage, where he lived and he worked for the rest of his productive life. While Jerome says that Tertullian became a priest, others say that he remained a layman, serving the church at Carthage as one of its elders. As soon as Tertullian converted, he turned his considerable intellectual talents to defending the faith. He was the first to write a systematic set of apologetics and theology in Latin, for which he's earned the title the Father of Latin Theology. Tertullian engaged a whole host of topics. He wrote Roman officials explaining in modes that they were familiar with why persecution of Christians was unwise. He wrote some of the earliest works on defining the doctrine of the Trinity, using terms that later writers drew on to develop the orthodox position of three persons in one God. And like Irenaeus before him, and from whom he had drawn quite a bit of his inspiration, Tertullian defended the faith against the Gnostics. His writing has been described by a slew of, well, rather interesting adjectives. It's been described as aggressive, sarcastic, caustic, harsh, but across it all is a logical brilliance deeply rooted in sacred scripture. His harshness wasn't only directed at his opponents, he employed it even towards himself as well when he shares his own struggles. Though he wrote two centuries later, Jerome says that Tertullian was well regarded in the church and a much sought after speaker. If his writing is any indication, he understood the imperative of keeping one's audience alert. It's clear that his learning was vast, as he drew from numerous and diverse sources in building his case. Over 30 of his works are known, though most today are based on ultra-slim manuscript evidence. 
it's certain that he wrote much more that's been lost. His most important work was the Apologeticum, a defense of the Christian faith and its adherents. Second is his theological treatise titled Against Praxis, in which Tertullian responds to a heretic named Praxis who was butchering what the Bible taught about the persons of the Godhead. It was here for the first time that someone used the term Trinity in describing God. In his work On the Prescription of Heretics, Tertullian lays out a brilliant plan for how to conduct a discussion with heretics. Now, if that's all that Tertullian accomplished, well, he'd still go down as one of the more important of the church fathers. But what sets him genuinely apart is that he decided to join a splinter group known as the Montanists, while at the same time writing prolifically in defense of Orthodox Christianity. That alone and the fact that Tertullian stands as an exemplar advocate of the faith move us to reassess the label that's attached by some to the Montanists as heretics. Now, we took a look at Montanism back in episode 5 of season 1. It behooves us to do a little bit of review. Sometime around AD 160, three people joined forces in Phrygia, a region in Central Asia, which, of course, today is the nation of Turkey. A man named Montanus was the leader, but he was assisted by two capable and energetic women named Maximilla and Prisca. These three claim they were directed by the Holy Spirit via a word of prophecy to bring much needed reform to the church. Most of what's known about the Montanists comes to us through their opponents and critics. So it's not always simple knowing what's an accurate description of their beliefs and what's been altered to make them look bad. Reading modern labels back onto the Montanists, hyper-Pentecostals may be an apt description. Montanists claim that the Holy Spirit spoke directly through him to the church. He announced that the city of Pepuza in Phrygia would soon be the site of the New Jerusalem, and so he set up his headquarters there. A central message of the Montanists was the soon return of Christ and the need for his followers to get ready by adopting a strict asceticism that included a lot of fasting. Now, when they did eat, they were supposed to eat only dry foods because apparently moist food was too easy to chew and too enjoyable, and so it must be a sinful indulgence of the flesh. They were also required to abstain from sex, including married couples. Those who joined the movement were encouraged to relish persecution, and they regarded it as a badge of genuine faith and loyalty to God. Now, we might assume that with such rigorous requirements, the movement wouldn't have been all that appealing and only have a small number of adherents. But that's not the case. It became quite popular. Its appeal was enhanced by a revival of teaching and the practice of the use of the spiritual gifts. Tongues, prophecy, and other manifestations of the Spirit, as described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, were encouraged. And the strict asceticism that was practiced by the Montanists apparently wasn't merely a way for people to kind of one-up each other in a contest to see who was more spiritually mature and disciplined. It was encouraged and cherished by the conviction that Jesus was coming soon. A careful watch over one's moral life seemed a reasonable response to the belief that they were about to stand in the presence of a holy God. They needed to pursue a practical holiness in their daily lives because on any one of those days, Jesus could come, and even more, they believed he would come. 
The growth and challenge of the Montanist movement presented such a challenge that church leaders convened some of their first synods to decide how to respond to it. It was decided that the excesses of these new prophets were too extreme to tolerate. In fact, it was suggested that Montanus, Maximilla's, and Prisca's ecstatic prophetic episodes, well, they looked more like a case of demon possession than the way the gift of prophecy had been practiced in the church up till that time. So, exorcists were sent to deal with them. When nothing came of that and the Montanists refused to back down, they were excommunicated. What's interesting to historians is that while the fact of their excommunication is given, the reasons for it are not documented. All we know is that an official split occurred between the Montanists and the Apostolic Church. While historically, Montanism has gone down as one of the earliest heresies to threaten the Church, the more you read, the door opens to question that conclusion. Again, let's remember that most of what we know about the Montanists comes from the records of their critics. How would your lifelong opponent describe you? And we have to remember that Tertullian, a rock and pillar of the Orthodox, Catholic, Apostolic faith, well, he became a Montanist. So a reassessment of the Montanists is likely due. This became abundantly clear to me after studying all the various groups that sprang up in Europe during the Middle Ages and the Reformation. So many of those little groups, history has plastered with the designation of heretics, most certainly were not. They just refused to abide in what they considered a corrupt and corrupting religious institution. Refusing to kowtow to its demands, they were systematically erased, along with all the evidence of their existence, leaving only what their enemies said about them. So, regarding the Montanists, something I shared in episode 5 may be helpful. If you live in an urban or a suburban community, as you drive around town, you will likely see numerous churches with different signs and different labels. Christianity is composed of hundreds of groups and thousands of sects. While the services held in different local churches may be similar, and others, they differ widely in style, culture, values, doctrine. Some services are sedate and composed, putting more emphasis on rationality and the centrality of the sermon, or maybe the practice of a liturgy. But others encourage an emotional encounter with God, so the music and worship take a more active place. Now, I'm obviously generalizing widely, but you get the idea. My point is that two churches may be packed, though each is on opposite ends of each other in regard to the culture that they express. Each appeals to very different groups of people. It isn't that one is right and the other is wrong. It's just that people are different. And God in his wisdom has provided a place for all of them to come closer to him. I can't help but wonder if there isn't some of that dynamic that occurred with the Montanists. Before coming to faith in Christ, Montanus was a pagan priest of either Apollo or Sibyl. Both gods were worshipped by priests and priestesses that were given to ecstatic trances. Whether these altered states of consciousness were induced by hallucinogenic drugs, extreme meditative rituals, or outright demonic activity, the person in ecstasy would enter a trance where their eyes would literally roll up in their heads, their bodies would go rigid, their voice would alter, and they'd make solemn pronouncements as though by the voice of some god. Well, that was Montanus's background. 
and in light of some of the things that he said and did, some have questioned the genuineness of his conversion. Did he really come to faith, or like some of the more other aberrant groups of the time, did he see the rising popularity of Christianity and simply adopt some of its terms and forms while carrying on under his old pagan practices? Did he just rebrand his demonically induced ecstasies? Well, that's what some church historians conclude. Some of what Montanus, along with Prisca and Maximilla, went on to prophesy was goofy. But a good number of the charges leveled against Montanus reflected his practices before his conversion. It was his critics who accused him of making his post-conversion prophetic announcements in the old pagan trance-like state. Others said that he did not operate that way after he had come to faith, that he renounced his pagan past, but that he, like his supporters, was someone who yearned for a more emotionally engaged and experiential kind of faith, and that the work of the Holy Spirit, so prominent in the earliest church, must not be forfeited. It was in danger of that very thing as the faith had to contend with hostile government officials and an emerging mix of aberrant groups. All the energy by the church's brightest leaders seemed to be going into the cerebral, the doctrinal, the apologetic, and this emphasis on the mind was numbing the heart of faith. The Montanists wanted to see the Holy Spirit kept active and present in the church's midst. Sadly, their claims to being the especially anointed led to excesses and a discrediting of their movement, just as has happened in more recent times with the wild pronouncements and false prophecies of some of the hyper-charismatics. Some of the criticisms of the ancient anti-Montanists rested on the fact that the Montanists were so bold in proclaiming their faith and operating in the gifts of the Spirit that it was drawing attention to the faith right at the time when others were telling believers to keep their heads down and their mouths shut because of persecution. The decision to excommunicate the Montanists was anything but unanimous among church leaders. Many believed that while the new prophets had indeed gotten too far in their excessive emphasis on asceticism, their renewal of the use of the spiritual gifts was a return to the primitive Christianity that had been practiced by the apostles and is described in the book of Acts. But what brought Montanism into the greatest disrepute was the failure of some of its leaders' prophecies about impending events. This and their ultra-strict asceticism earned them the label of being highly aberrant, if not outright heretical. Though it was right for church leaders of the late 2nd century to censure the Montanists for their excesses, they probably went too far in labeling them heretics. Because the Montanists put such emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, rejecting Montanism tend to put a damper on the exercise of spiritual gifts. An unfortunate turn at a time when Christians needed every bit of help they could get. As we read Tertullian, it appears that he'd grown disillusioned with the moral state of the church, which, out of a desire to avoid persecution, was accommodating more and more of the ways of the world. Martyrdom, which had once been a badge of honor, was now being avoided even to the place of denying the faith. And Tertullian thought the way the church was handling serious public sins was simply way too lenient. 
Since the Montanists held positions on all these things matching his own, well, it seemed a natural fit to join them, and so join them he did. What's not clear is whether that meant Tertullian actually left the church at Carthage to join some local Montanist church. In fact, we're not even sure there was some separate place where the Montanists met. It seems most likely that they merely existed as a group inside the church at Carthage. Yet even while numbering himself with the Montanists, Tertullian continued to churn out theology defining and apologetics defending the Orthodox Catholic Apostolic faith. But the anti-Montanists managed to win the day and eventually the sect was declared heretical. So Tertullian has never been recognized as a saint though his work became foundational to later formulations of the faith. Tertullian's later life remains a mystery. All we know is that 200 years later, Jerome wrote that Tertullian died of old age. (laughs) 